Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around a watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Bambi. HR managers ain't cheap. Their salaries average $70,000 a year. So go to Bambi.com gold now to schedule your free HR audit. The podcast is also sponsored by True Niagen. True Niagen helps fuel the cell's energy engines, maintains cellular metabolism, and even supports a healthy heart in combination with a healthy lifestyle. And now you can save 10% on your first purchase at trueniagen.com slash Peter when you use the promo code Peter. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is the final podcast for 2021. And I want to begin by wishing all of my listeners a happy new year. I know it was a very frustrating year for a lot of people, for a lot of reasons. I mean, certainly dealing with COVID made this year particularly difficult relative to years past, although not quite as bad as 2020. But from an investor's perspective, probably importantly, investors who are following my investment advice, it was pretty frustrating in that a lot of things happened that I have been talking about, warning about, predicting for many, many years, yet we didn't really see the effect that we have anticipated on the various investments that we're holding. I mean, given what happened in 2021, I would have expected, and certainly a lot of people listening to this podcast would have expected a down year for the dollar and an up year for gold. Instead, it was the reverse. The dollar actually gained ground on 2021. Now, of course, the dollar didn't gain purchasing power. The dollar lost a lot of purchasing power. That's obvious. But on a relative basis against other fiat currencies, the dollar appreciated. The price of gold also dropped. I mean, it wasn't a collapse, but still gold was down about 5% on the year. Now, the year's not over. I am recording this podcast on Thursday, December 30th, just after the close of the U.S. stock market. So we still have another trading day left of the year. So I will get into the specific yearly returns for lots of different asset classes on the first podcast that I do in 2022. But considering we're so close to the end of the year, down about 5% is probably where gold's going to end up, barring some big move that we may have tomorrow. But despite that decline, we're still up on the price of gold as of right now, about 2.5% during the month of December. In fact, gold prices rose a little over $10 an ounce today, 
We're right now at 1815. So it looks like we'll probably end 2021 above 1800, which is still a pretty good base from which gold can build a rather spectacular rally. Looking at the price of silver, it managed a 21 cent gain today. So it's over $23 an ounce now, 23.05. It's a closer call as to whether or not we'll finish out the year above or below 23. But at least we're ending the year on a bit of a strong note, even if we had a sour note for the balance of the year, especially given what happened with inflation. Because the real story of 2021 is inflation. I mean, everybody is talking about inflation. You hear it constantly on the news. Business news is talking about it. But All the news stations are talking about it. It's not just a financial story that you might hear about on CNBC or Fox Business, but it's everywhere. It's on ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox News. A lot of the stories are about inflation. And of course, a lot of the criticism that is being leveled at Biden has to do with inflation. In fact, one of the reasons that Biden is so unpopular and why his Fable rating has collapsed more than any modern president in history is specifically because of inflation. Yet if you turn the clock back to 2020, nobody was worried about inflation. I mean, nobody other than me and maybe a few other people, lone voices crying in the wilderness. But the vast majority of people, including the central bankers, were actually worried that we didn't have enough inflation. They were worried about a lack of inflation and they were doing everything they could to create more inflation, especially in the aftermath of COVID. Because when COVID-19 first emerged on the scene in early 2020, everybody was talking about how this was deflationary, how the Fed and other central banks had to intervene because of all the demand that was being destroyed based on the fact that people were staying at home and and not traveling and and not spending and just conducting their lives. And so we were going to have this big recession because of a collapse in demand and governments and central banks needed to do something to prevent this huge recession and to try to prevent consumers from hunkering down and and not spending because after all we need consumers to spend because that's what supposedly drives the economy and so everybody was concerned that we wouldn't have enough spending and so the central banks stepped on the gas and just flooded the world with money so that people would keep spending yet for some reason people still were worried about deflation or about the fact that we didn't have enough inflation. I was one of the only people that pointed out that that was ridiculous, that inflation was exactly what we needed to worry about because the rest of the economists or the market pundits, they were simply focusing on the demand side of the supply and demand equation. I was looking also at the supply side and recognizing that supply was going down. All of this talk about supply chain bottlenecks, none of this should have surprised anybody. This is all the obvious consequence of factories shutting down, of workers being furloughed. If people aren't going to work, they're not producing stuff. And if people aren't producing stuff, well, now there's a shortage of stuff. But also, we didn't have a drop in demand. Everybody was worried about demand going down, I knew demand was going up because the governments, particularly the Federal Reserve, was flooding the economy with dollars, stuffing those dollars in the pockets of Americans, and they were running out and spending. Now, demand changed. Yes, demand for certain services went down because people weren't traveling as much. They weren't going out to the movies. They weren't going out to restaurants. They weren't going out to bars. So spending in certain areas went down. But thanks to the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government, spending in other areas went way up. So in aggregate, consumers were spending a lot more during the pandemic than they spent before 
the pandemic. So what happened was we had an increase in demand at the same time we had a decrease in supply. Now, you don't have to be a PhD in economics to understand what that's going to do to prices. In fact, probably having a PhD in economics makes it more complicated to see what's going to happen. All you need is a brain and some common sense to realize that if demand goes up and supply goes down, price is going to go way up. And that is exactly what happened in 2021. And again, what nobody seems to understand is that we wanted demand to go down during the lockdowns. When people are working less and producing less, it's important that they consume less. Now, if that means we have a recession, we have a recession. What the government did made the situation worse because instead of people reducing their consumption along with their production, they wanted to consume more. They were spending more because of the asinine monetary and fiscal stimulus that took place during the pandemic. And again, first, the Federal Reserve said there isn't any inflation to worry about. And then when it reared its head, it said, well, don't worry, it's transitory. It wasn't until recently that the Fed acknowledged that it's not transitory, but the Fed is still confident that the problem is going to go away if they simply increase the pace of their planned taper of the asset purchase program. And if they start their tiny rate hike campaign A couple of months sooner in 2022, that's going to completely eradicate the inflation problem that they didn't even think existed as late as a couple of months ago. But the frustrating part is that, yes, I was right about inflation, and it is a much bigger problem than the government admits, because even though the official rate is 7%, the real rate is more like 15%. We haven't seen the results that you would have expected in the dollar and in gold. And again, the reason that we haven't seen this is because the markets still believe the Fed and they are discounting into the exchange rate of the dollar and the price of gold this tight monetary policy that they expect. But we're not going to get tight money. Even if we get money that's less loose, it's still not tight. And in fact, even if it's less loose for a while, it's ultimately going to be even looser in the future than it is right now. Any progress that the Fed makes in reducing the amount of accommodation it is supplying will be unwound as soon as we see adverse reactions in either the market or the economy. Eventually, it's got to happen. It always does. The question is, will the Fed wait until that happens, or will they preemptively try to prevent it from happening? But either way, we're going to get a reversal in policy. But at some point, either after the Fed reverses or before, because the markets correctly anticipate the reverse, we're going to start to see the reaction that I've been expecting and anticipating in both gold and the dollar. And maybe the strength that we're seeing in December of 2021 is indicative of further strength that we will see in 2022. And remember, just because we started talking about inflation in 2021 doesn't mean we didn't have it in 2020 or 2019 or 2018. We did have it. That's all we had. The Fed has been creating inflation massively ever since the 2008 financial crisis. The difference is that inflation was not manifesting itself in the CPI to the degree that it is now. Now, one of the reasons is because the CPI doesn't accurately measure inflation. And so even if inflation was 4 or 5 or 6% a year, which is still a big problem, the CPI wasn't picking that up. The CPI was still showing 2%. It's just that now inflation is so high that the CPI can't possibly hide it. If inflation is 15%, the CPI is still going to reflect a good chunk of that. And that's why we're seeing 7%. Now, as I've been saying, 
I think we're going to get potentially an even bigger number in 2022 because I know a lot of businesses have been holding back on their price hikes. They were hoping that inflation was transitory. They didn't want to jump the gun. They didn't want to raise their prices and risk losing some market share. They figured they would just take a hit to their margins in the short run, waiting for this transitory inflation to transition. But I think come January of 2022, I think a lot of businesses are going to ring in the new year with some big price hikes. I think they're going to try to catch up to the price hikes that they should have implemented in 2021. And I think they're going to try to get in front of the continued cost pressures that they know they're going to face in 2022. So consumers could get hit with bigger increases in 2022 than they did in 2021. So inflation isn't going to subside the way the markets expect or the way the Fed expects. It's actually going to get worse. Now, one thing that may cover it up a bit, I read a couple of articles about changes that are being made to the methodology of calculating the CPI that are going to go into effect in January. Now, I got to do a little bit more research because I'm still not really sure what these changes are. But my gut feeling is whatever they are, those changes are going to shave a little bit off the CPI. I'm sure they're designed to make the number lower, which is what every change that we have made has resulted in. So again, they need to rig the CPI because that's the only way to get official inflation to be lower is to find an even more dishonest way of measuring it. So again, I'm not sure what's going to be changed, but I'm sure whatever the change is going to be, it is going to hide some of the inflation, but it won't be able to hide all of it. It will be obvious, but not only in the indexes, but to the public. The public is going to have a bigger problem with rising prices in 2022 than they did in 2021. And another reason that I believe that price pressures will be greater next year than this year is because I do believe that the dollar decline that should have happened in 2021 will happen in 2022. And think about this for a minute. If we had inflation this bad in 2021 with a strengthening dollar, imagine how much worse it's going to be in 2022 if we have a weakening dollar. When you're running a small business, it's those HR issues that can kill you. You've got wrongful termination suits, discrimination lawsuits, minimum wage requirements, all sorts of labor regulations, and those HR managers' salaries ain't cheap. They average $70,000 a year. That's where Bambi comes in. Bambi was created specifically for small business owners. You can get your own dedicated HR manager who will craft your HR policy and maintain your compliance and do it all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from being your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager will be available by phone, email, or real-time chat. For anything from onboarding to terminations, they will customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day to day and do it all for just 99 bucks a month. And the best part, it's month to month. There are no hidden fees and you can cancel anytime. I sure wish Bambi was around when I was starting my business. It would have made my job a lot easier and allowed me to succeed that much sooner. So just go to Bambi.com slash gold right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash gold spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash gold. And one of the reasons that we should have a weakening dollar, apart from the fact that we keep on creating them and keep increasing the supply, look at these trade deficits. Yesterday, we got the November merchandise trade deficit. This deficit was supposed to come in at $86 billion, and that would have followed an $82.9 billion deficit in the previous month. Well, the previous month's deficit was revised up a bit to $83.2 billion, but the November deficit came in at $97.8 
billion dollars, a new all-time record high. Now, this is not the kind of record that you want to break, right? Because it's a record for something bad. Well, we broke it, 97.8. The bad news, of course, is that this record is not going to stand. We're going to break it. We'll probably break it in December. December may be the first monthly trade deficit to exceed $100 billion in a single month. I mean, that's a bad trade deficit in a year. And we did it in one month, or we'll do it in one month. The $97.8 billion deficit in November is a 15% increase over that upwardly revised October number. And here's how we got to it, because this is even worse. Imports rose by 4.7%. That is a big jump in one month in imports, 4.7%. At the same time we were importing more, we were exporting less. Our exports were down 2.1%. We're importing more, we're exporting less. How much more screwed up can the U.S. economy be? Everybody is out there talking about how we got this great economic recovery, how our economy is the envy of the world, right? We've got the strongest economy in the world, yet we've got the biggest trade deficit in the world, the biggest trade deficit in U.S. history. How does that jive with a strong economy? It doesn't. Strong economies produce surpluses. They don't produce deficits. When you have a strong economy, Your businesses, your factories are churning out goods. In fact, you churn out so many goods in a strong economy that you produce more than you need. And you're able to export all those goods to the rest of the world. In exchange, you get foreign exchange and then you invest that and you become a wealthier nation because you invest the proceeds of your trade surpluses. But what we're running are deficits. We have a weak economy. The U.S. economy is incapable of producing the goods that Americans are consuming. And so we rely on stronger economies abroad to produce the stuff that we can't. And so we give them our paper and we get our stuff. Mother's Day is almost here and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried and true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Now, of course, they take that paper and they invest it in U.S. financial assets, and now they are generating a return. They are investing the proceeds from their surpluses. That's economic strength. In fact, if you look at China, China's exports year over year are up 30%. I mean, they are killing it in China. They are producing and they're exporting. Now, we want to blame our export problems on COVID, right? Oh, we can't produce as much stuff because we're dealing with COVID. Well, they got COVID in China too. In fact, it started in China. How can COVID have the opposite effect in China that it has in the United States? So in America, because of COVID, we produce less. But in China, because of COVID, they produce more? COVID's got nothing to do with it. China is producing more because they have a strong economy. We're producing less because we have a weak economy. We just have a bubble. Now, I'm not saying everything is perfect over there in China. They certainly have their share of problems. But beneath the surface lies a viable economy. And these huge trade surpluses evidence that economic viability. But beneath the surface of the U.S. economy is nothing but a bubble. And these huge record trade deficits evidence that bubble. And I think this is going to be a big problem in 2022 because I don't see how these deficits are going to get financed. And it's not just the trade deficit we've got to finance. It's these budget deficits. Now, what foreigners have been doing with all their surpluses is they've been recycling those surpluses into U.S. financial assets. For a while, a lot of the recycling was in the bond market. They were buying treasuries. They were buying mortgage-backed securities. 
but the yields are just not nearly high enough for that to continue. The yield on a 10-year treasury is barely 1.5%. And on a 30-year treasury, you're still not even getting 2%. You're getting a little over 1.9%. Even if inflation goes down to 2%, which is never going to happen. We're never going to see 2% again. I don't care how much manipulation happens with the CPI. I doubt they'll even bring that thing below 3% or even near 3%. But even if we could get to 2%, you still have a negative yield on the 30-year treasury. But in a world where inflation is officially 7%, unofficially 15%, who in their right mind is going to buy U.S. treasuries? Certainly not foreigners. I mean, I don't even think Americans would want to buy U.S. treasuries, but it's an even worse deal for foreigners because at least from the perspective of an American, there's no currency risk in treasuries. Right? People know there's no default risk or they assume there's no default risk, but they also assume there's no currency risk. So, okay, I get a very low return, but at least I'm not taking any risk. Right? If I put a million dollars into treasuries and I'm only going to get a 1.5% yield, at least I know that I'm not going to lose my million dollars right? because it's U.S. treasuries and I'm going to get my million dollars back. As long as I wait for the bond to mature, I'm not going to lose. I'm going to get all my dollars. Now, of course, there's purchasing power risk, but apart from that, a lot of Americans aren't thinking about that. They're just looking at a low-risk investment with a low return. right? It's called risk-free. Now, of course, it's not really risk-free. It's more like return-free, So instead of it being a risk-free return, it's a return-free risk. I mean, that's really what you've got because the return is so small. In fact, it's guaranteed to be negative because of real yields. But think about U.S. treasuries from the position of a European, for example. Somebody in the Eurozone whose reference currency is the Euro, does that person want to buy U.S. treasuries? Because for them, it's not risk-free. There is a lot of currency risk. Because if I take a million euros and buy U.S. treasuries, what if the dollar goes down? My million euros can become 900,000 euros or 800,000 euros. I'm taking a lot of risk. What type of return am I getting? Nothing. I'm getting 1.5%. I mean, even if the return on U.S. dollars is higher than the return on European bonds, right? If I can get more in treasuries, for example, than I can in German bunds, is it really worth the risk? Because if I'm in Europe and the euro is my currency, then at least I don't have currency risk on the bunds. But I have tremendous currency risk on treasuries. So the extra nominal yield is not worth it. So there's no way foreigners are recycling their trade surpluses into our bond market. Now, what they have been doing recently is recycling those surpluses into our equity markets. They've been buying our stocks, particularly a lot of the big stocks like Apple and Amazon and Google and Netflix and the FANG stocks and all that, right? That's what they've been doing with their trade surpluses. But will that continue in 2022? I don't think so. There's a lot of evidence that that bubble is breaking, that air is starting to seep out. A lot of the high-flying stocks have gone down dramatically since their peaks. It hasn't really hit the overall NASDAQ yet, but we've seen a lot of weakness beneath the surface, and the leadership now is highly concentrated, right? The soldiers are getting slaughtered, but the generals are still, you know, intact. But at some point, I think that the generals are going to get shot too, and the momentum is going to break in overpriced U.S. tech stocks. And then into what will the world recycle their trade surpluses? Because if U.S. stocks are no longer attractive and U.S. bonds have already lost any appeal they might have had, what do we got? I mean, Americans don't want to buy treasuries, so foreigners won't buy it. Americans are still buying U.S. stocks, but why should foreigners do it when the valuation premium that investors are paying to buy U.S. stocks is near record highs? The value of stocks in Europe and Asia is much better. The valuations, you get a lot more earnings for your euro or your yen 
if you invest outside the United States than if you invest inside the United States. So I think this huge valuation gap is going to cause our foreign creditors to want to invest more of their earnings in their own equity market and less in the U.S. equity market, especially if the dollar starts to fall. And in fact, if foreigners aren't recirculating their trade surpluses into U.S. stocks, the dollar will fall because those dollars will then be on the foreign exchange markets to be sold instead of being used to buy U.S. stocks, which trade in U.S. dollars. And as the U.S. dollar starts to fall, that also increases the perceived risk of owning U.S. equities because now you have the currency risk. So even if you're a foreigner and you're investing in U.S. stocks, if the dollar declines by more than the increase in the price of U.S. stocks, you're losing. You have the same currency risk in equities that you do in bonds, except it's more important in bonds because the expected yield is so low. A lot of people might expect more gains from the stock market, but currency losses could still completely offset those gains and turn gains into losses. So if we end up with our foreign creditors not wanting to recirculate their surpluses into U.S. stocks and instead liquidating those surpluses so they can invest in their own domestic equity markets. That is a huge problem for the United States. It's a huge problem for the dollar, but it is exactly what would be needed to cause my investment strategy to really start to perform because what we own are the international value stocks that everybody's going to want to buy when they're no longer interested in overpriced U.S. momentum stocks. In fact, as the world starts to divest of those stocks, as the momentum breaks and people want to sell those stocks, then they're going to take the proceeds from those sales, they're going to sell those dollars to get their own currencies back, and then they're going to invest those local currencies in their local stock markets. So that is going to compound the problems for the U.S. in 2022. True Niagen helps fuel the cell's energy engines, maintain cellular metabolism, and it even supports a healthy heart in combination with a healthy lifestyle. With 13 published human clinical studies and backed by Nobel Prize winners, True Niagen is a supplement that's clinically proven to boost NAD levels and essential coenzyme required for cellular energy and repair. And now you can save 10% off your first purchase at trueniagen.com slash Peter using the promo code Peter. That's trueniagen.com, T-R-U-N-I-G-E-N dot com slash Peter. And when you use the promo code Peter, you'll save 10% off your first purchase. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. But also, I want to point out the price of lumber. Because lumber prices were a big story early in the year because they were soaring. Lumber prices you know, were up maybe fourfold or something like that. They had gone straight up. And then we had a really big correction in the price of lumber. Lumber prices peaked out in May of this year. And then they dropped for about three months. And the price was down over 60%. And as the lumber price tumbled... A lot of people were using that as an example of why inflation was transitory. In fact, Jerome Powell himself often talked about the big drop in the price of lumber as proof that he was right that inflation was transitory. After all, this big rise in the price of lumber was being reversed. And so this showed that these supply chain bottlenecks were becoming unclogged and the markets were correcting. Now, of course, lumber is not even in the CPI. So kind of hanging your hat on lumber as a reason to think that the CPI is going to stop going up doesn't make that much sense. But at least it was a price. That went way up, and now Jerome Powell was taking comfort in the fact that the price went way down. Well, what has happened to the price of lumber since? Well, in the last three months, lumber prices have more than doubled. And in fact, if you look at the price, which is up 40%, I think, just in the month of December so far, but we're now almost triple the price that we were at pre-pandemic. 
That is a huge increase in the price of lumber. And if falling lumber prices earlier in the year was some kind of indication that we didn't have to worry about inflation, what does it mean now when lumber prices are once again soaring? Yeah, there is a lot of volatility, no question about it. But look at the direction. The direction is up. And I think we're going to take out the 2021 high maybe in 2022. But it's not just lumber prices that are going up. Commodity prices across the board are going up and they're going to keep going up. And there's nothing the Federal Reserve is going to do to slow it down. Same thing with oil and other energy prices. All of these prices are going much, much higher in the years ahead. And this is not just a problem that the United States is going to be dealing with. This is a problem that the entire world is going to be dealing with, except the United States is the nation least likely to try to solve it. I mean, I do think that we're going to get some type of movement from the ECB because the ECB has been able to justify its reckless interest rate policy on the pretense that we didn't have enough inflation. They were able to take their 2% inflation ceiling and somehow say, oh, well, you know, we need to be very close to that ceiling. We have to be at 1.9%. And then when we got to 2%, they were like, well, we could be a little bit above it. Well, now the Eurozone is way above 2%. They're not even close to it anymore. And so therefore, there is no justification. They can't claim that they need to keep interest rates negative because of an absence of inflation. In fact, the Germans over at the Bundesbank, they're not going to allow it. I mean, they've kind of been silenced because they've accepted this idea that inflation needed to be 2%, but they're not going to accept the idea that it needs to be 4% or 5% or anything close to that. And so there's going to be a lot of pressure over there to tighten policy. And I think we're more likely to see a legitimate tightening in the Eurozone than in the US. And in fact, we may even see a tightening in Japan. Everybody is talking about how a tighter Fed is going to be bullish for the dollar. Well, what about a tighter ECB or Bank of Japan? It's foreign central banks that have the ability to raise rates because they are not as vulnerable to rising rates as the U.S. Now, I'm not saying that there's not going to be any problems in Europe that are going to result from rising interest rates. Of course there will. There's all sorts of malinvestments over there too. It's just not nearly as bad as in the United States. And so when push comes to shove, they still may do the right thing, especially when you have the cooler heads at the Bundesbank that will push them in the right direction. You don't have any cooler heads at the Fed. They're all nuts. Everybody is going to do what's politically expedient. And so they're going to keep the presses going no matter what. But probably the most frustrating thing about 2021 was all of the press that Bitcoin got. I mean, talk about stealing gold's thunder as gold prices declined 5% on the year. And of course, a lot of people were disappointed by the fact that we had this big uptick in inflation, unexpected, at least by the mainstream, yet gold did not perform. Now, again, I went over the reason for gold's failure to perform in 2021. In fact, what a lot of people don't understand is that the fact that gold didn't go down more, despite all this talk about the Fed tightening and the Fed tightening faster and further than the markets anticipated, gold shrugged most of that off and moved sideways. The fact that it moved sideways and not way down is an indication of underlying strength that nobody wants to acknowledge. But of course, in this vacuum of gold not performing, right, the spotlight went on Bitcoin and everybody talked about Bitcoin and highlighted its spectacular performance, how much better it was doing than gold. And therefore, Bitcoin is the new gold. It's the new store of value. It's the new inflation hedge. And proof was how much better Bitcoin was doing than gold in 2021. But the fact of the matter is, even though Bitcoin is way up, and obviously 2021 is not over yet, as I am recording this podcast on Thursday afternoon, 
Bitcoin is a little bit above 47,000. And we ended last year, 2020, I think around 29,000. So we're still up about 60% on the year. This has not been a good year for Bitcoin. I mean, it's been a good year if you own Bitcoin and if you sold your Bitcoin, right? And when you listen to CNBC and they're talking about what a great year this has been for Bitcoin, it's been a great year for people who already own Bitcoin before the year began, people who bought it many years ago and who took advantage of the opportunity to sell their Bitcoin in 2021. That's who it was a good year for, the sellers. It was a lousy year for anybody who got conned into buying Bitcoin. If you think about it, yes, Bitcoin is up 60% on the year. But all of those gains occurred during the first five weeks of this year. That's it. Bitcoin's price today is actually lower than what its price was in February of this year. It's down by more than 30% from its high. In fact, so far in December, it's down about 17.5%. Now, maybe by the time the month comes to an end, Bitcoin will be down more than 20% in the month of December. So it's clearly in bear market territory, being down 30% from its high. But if it's still below where it was in February, the people who were buying Bitcoin in March and April and May and June, these people are all down. In fact, I think half the people who own Bitcoin bought it this year. And almost all of those people are down. This was a year of distribution. This was the year where a lot of the whales were finally able to cash out a big chunk of their Bitcoin. Now, not all the whales, right? Michael Saylor, he's still buying over at MicroStrategy. In fact, he just announced again today another big buy of Bitcoin. He keeps on averaging his price up as the price of Bitcoin keeps falling, pretty soon he's going to be hodling all that Bitcoin at a loss, not at a gain. But beneath the surface, a lot of people have been unloading their Bitcoin. That's why the price hasn't gone up. You know, it was in February when Bitcoin first got above 50,000. We're below it now. But when it got above 50,000 in February, that's when all these people started putting laser beams on their eyes, on their profile pics on Twitter. Well, how many of those people, when they were adding those laser beams back in February, thought that the price of Bitcoin at the end of the year would actually be lower than it was when they were putting on those laser beams? Because the laser beams were supposed to signify solidarity in holding to 100,000. Well, people may be holding indefinitely because Bitcoin may never see 100,000. Now, I admit, I thought, it may never see 50,000, although I thought it was a possibility. And I'm not saying the possibility is zero, that it can go to 100,000, but I think the probability is less than 50% that it's going to get up there. I'm not sure how low the probability is, but the technicals look very weak for Bitcoin. In fact, one of the predictions that I made about Bitcoin really came true in 2021. And that's the predictions I made about Grayscale, the Bitcoin trust, GBTC. I talked a lot about that trust when it was trading at a premium. And I forecast that at some point it would be at a discount. And it has spent most of this year at a discount. In fact, the discount hit a high of about 22 within the last week. I think the discount has narrowed a bit, maybe 17, 18% as I'm recording this podcast, but that is a huge discount. And think about this. The Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is only up 11% on the year. And all of those gains happened during the first week of the year. So the Bitcoin Trust has not added to any of the gains that it made in the first week of the year. And in fact, it hit its high in mid-February of this year. And we're now 39% below the high from February of 2021, despite a massive advertising blitz. I mean, you can't turn on CNBC and watch that network for 15 minutes without seeing an ad for the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. I mean, they are the biggest advertiser on CNBC. And of course, they advertise other places too. They advertise all over the internet. Yet despite an unprecedented ad spend, 
the price of that trust has been continuously falling the entire year as they are pounding and pounding people to buy it. And of course, the people over at Grayscale will say, well, we're up 11% this year. That's better than gold, right? Gold was down 5%. Our advertising campaign was to drop gold and buy GBTC. And so we beat gold, except number one, if you watch that ad starting in February, March, April, or any time after that, and you drop your gold and you bought GBTC then, well, you're worse off. You had to make that switch at the end of 2020 or at the very beginning, the first few days of 2021. Otherwise, it didn't work out. But in reality, you should not compare GBTC to gold because Bitcoin is nothing like gold. Bitcoin is a highly speculative asset. So what you should compare the return on GBTC to is the returns on other speculative assets like the NASDAQ, which is an index of all sorts of speculative stocks. And while GBTC is still up 11% on the year, the NASDAQ is up 28% on the year. So people who are speculating are being rewarded to a much greater degree buying stocks than buying Bitcoin through GBTC. In fact, if you really want to bet on a bubble and you want to do it by buying a security, right, you shouldn't be buying GBTC. You should be buying the NASDAQ. They're both bubbles. They've both been inflated by the Fed. But the people who are betting on the stock market bubble are getting paid a lot more than the people who are betting on the Bitcoin bubble. So Bitcoin is a slower horse in the race. If you want to speculate, do it in stocks, not Bitcoin. So the question is, with all this buying into that trust, how is it that the price is falling? I mean, we know who's buying it, right? All the people who are seeing these ads and they're buying it, but who is selling it? Obviously, massive distribution is taking place. This is a massive pump and dump. The big boys are pumping and they're dumping as the little guys are buying and they're using the profits to finance this ad spend. And of course, CNBC has been completely corrupted by the ad money because they're trying to appease their advertisers. So all of the coverage is positive. Again, that's another thing that people have to consider. With all the positive press that Bitcoin has received and cryptocurrency in general, how is it that Bitcoin is not up more? The entire year, Bitcoin hasn't gone up. All those gains were in the first five weeks of the year. But now those five weeks define the entire year. Because when people keep talking about this 60% gain, you didn't participate in any of that gain. If you bought your Bitcoin in February or March or April, you're losing. You had to be in Bitcoin basically going into 2021. You had to already own it to have that 60% gain. If you came late to the party, if you didn't buy your Bitcoin till February, March, April, or something like that, you don't have any of those gains. In fact, most of those people have losses. Despite all the advertising, all the pumping, the price has not gone up. Imagine where the price would be if we didn't have all that pumping, if we didn't have all that advertising. So this is a warning sign. Talk about whistling past the graveyard. None of these Bitcoin hodlers are any bit concerned about the failure of their beloved Bitcoin to actually rise despite all of the positive press and all of the advertising to get it to rise. It's not going anywhere. And if something can't go up, then it's going to go down. And I think a lot of people that climbed aboard this train looking for a ride, right? They thought they were going to go up. They thought these laser beams were going to pan out. They're going to cash out. They're going to want to get off of this train because it's not going anywhere, especially if gold really starts to move. You know, in contrast to Bitcoin getting killed in December, right down 17.5% so far, as I said earlier in the podcast, Gold is up 2.5% in December. So we're starting to see this divergence. And of course, Bitcoin doesn't trade anything like gold. Its correlation is to risk assets. And not any risk assets, but the riskiest of risk assets. It's not like it's correlated to the NASDAQ so much as the most highly speculative stocks in the NASDAQ, right? Money losing companies, companies that have no profits, 
new companies, new IPOs, new SPACs, extremely speculative stocks. That's where the correlation is. And that's why you're starting to see a lot of the froth coming off of those stocks at the same time you're seeing this decline in Bitcoin. And so that can continue. But as Bitcoin continues to trade like a risk asset rather than a safe haven store of value inflation hedge, it highlights the absurdity of the whole Bitcoin marketing pitch. In fact, this marketing pitch maybe reached a crescendo Last night, I was watching on CNBC, they had another special. This is not the first time they did this, but they had another special. It aired at 6 p.m. Eastern live, Crypto Night in America. And they devoted an entire hour to pumping up Bitcoin. Of course, behind the scenes, there was a dump because during the one hour that this special aired, the price of Bitcoin dropped by 3% which is a pretty big move in an hour. And to me, it looked like it was an orchestrated pump and dump. I think a lot of the Bitcoin whales knew that this Bitcoin night in America was going to air. And they assumed that when it did, it would generate a lot of buying. And so they were there waiting to dump into that pump. And that is exactly what happened. But I want to talk a little bit too about the nonsense that I heard because all the regular players were highlighted and interviewed during this hour to talk their books and to talk about how great Bitcoin was and what a great year it had. And again, it had a great year for anybody who sold. And I've seen the evidence of that in my own community. Lots of Bitcoin whales have been cashing out and they're throwing their money around. They're bidding up real estate prices in my neighborhood. They're buying lots of things. They are the ones that are selling. The guys that got in years ago are getting out. It's the suckers who are getting in now. They're going to be the bag holders. But none of this comes up. This was an hour of pure pump. There was only one negative word spoken about crypto, and that was at the end. The final five minutes of the program, they spoke about celebrities endorsing cryptos, mostly altcoins. And they said this wasn't right. They get a coin. It's very thin. They get given the coin. They go out and tout it. It goes up. They sell it, pump and dump. And so somebody talked about how this was bad. Of course, this is bad, right? But the criticism wasn't necessarily leveled at Bitcoin or Ether, but just these scam coins, overlooking the fact that they're all scam coins. There's really no difference between these so-called shit coins and Bitcoin. They all stink. And again, they focused on the year-to-date returns without looking at when those returns occurred, that they all occurred early in the year and that Bitcoin has spent most of 2021 in a decline. In fact, they didn't even mention the 3% plunge that took place live on the air as they were pumping it. But of course, they weren't just pumping Bitcoin and cryptos. They were also pumping NFTs. And I want to talk about one point in particular that they made that really illustrates the absurdity of all this. So one guy was on there talking about virtual real estate in the metaverse and, you know, why it's so important to buy this virtual real estate. And one reason was so you can use your real estate to have ads, you know, just like in the real world, you have a billboard, right, that you would put on property that you own. You have an office building, you can put a billboard on top, right? So if you buy this virtual real estate and you build a virtual building, you can put a virtual billboard on the top of that building. And then the people who are in that metaverse will see that advertisement. And so this is why this virtual real estate is so valuable because you can have it as a platform for your virtual billboards. And one of the examples he talked about was fashion and clothing that, you know, these big clothing brands are going to want to have ads because, People in the metaverse are going to want to buy clothing for their avatars, right? So they can dress up their avatars in virtual clothing and they would advertise the virtual clothing on these virtual billboards, which is why it's so important to buy up this real estate so you can, you know, advertise your virtual clothes and you can sell these virtual clothes for a lot of money. Nobody bothers to think about the absurdity of the idea that anybody is going to pay a lot of money for virtual clothing. Nobody is. Yes, people will pay a lot of money for a name brand in reality, in the real world. Because when you're buying a particular brand of clothing and you get an actual garment, 
What's important is the craftsmanship, the workmanship, the material, because it's a real garment, right? It could wear out. It has to lay right on your body. It has to feel nice. So, you know, you can get a cheap imitation, a knockoff, but it's not going to have the same quality. It's not going to last as long as buying the real thing. So when you're buying a quality garment that you're going to wear, there is a real reason to pay more. Now, I get it. You know, there's also a brand and, you know, you can buy something similar that also has good quality and maybe it doesn't have the same cachet as a particular brand, but still the brands have high quality. They're not cheap. Contrast that to a virtual garment that you're going to put on your avatar. It doesn't matter about the quality of the material because there is no material. It's going to last forever because it's virtual and there's no texture. There's no feeling. There's no difference. I mean, if people are willing to buy knockoffs in the real world and sacrifice on quality, then of course they're going to buy knockoffs in the virtual world when you don't sacrifice anything. I mean, the virtual garment, if you buy the actual garment from a known brand, it's not going to be any different than a knockoff on your avatar because there's no garment there. There's nothing to feel. There's nothing to touch. There's nothing to wear out. It doesn't matter. And so nobody is going to pay a lot of money to buy an original outfit for their avatar when they can get an infinite number of copies from anybody else for next to nothing. So you're not going to make a lot of money selling virtual clothing on the internet in the metaverse. This is ridiculous. The clothing is going to be basically free. You'll be able to put any outfits you want on your avatar and only a complete idiot would pay any kind of premium to get some kind of branded pair of pants or shirt or jacket or dress, whatever it's going to be for the avatar. But they're talking about this like it's real, right? Nobody thinks any of this stuff through. This is all pie-in-the-sky nonsense to justify overpaying for air. None of this stuff is going to have any value. I don't care how much real estate you buy in whatever metaverse you think you're going to live in. It's not going to have any value. There is an unlimited number of metaverses that can be created and everybody can have whatever they want in a metaverse. And nobody is going to be paying high prices when they can pay lower prices someplace else. This is just what they're saying to pump all this stuff up. And again, every time I listen to any of these people talking about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency or how it's going to change the world, and they're talking and they're talking, when you actually listen to what they're saying, it is complete and utter garbage. None of it is true. None of it makes any sense. Like, look at Michael Saylor. His newest thing is that Bitcoin is energy. And he keeps talking about how Bitcoin is energy. How is Bitcoin energy? I mean, yes, you need energy to produce a Bitcoin. You have to waste a lot of energy to create Bitcoin. But once you create a Bitcoin, that energy is gone. That energy is not stored in your Bitcoin. You can't release that energy at some future point in time and do anything with it. It's a complete waste of energy. Yet somehow he's able to con people into believing that investing in Bitcoin is investing in energy. You want to invest in energy, you got to buy companies that actually produce energy. When you're investing in Bitcoin, you're helping the people that produce energy and that sell it to the Bitcoin miners. They're the ones that are making money. The Bitcoin miners are paying to use energy and everybody in the Bitcoin ecosystem ultimately has to bear that cost because it has to be paid from the collective community of Bitcoin owners. But I think one of the things that we may be ringing in in 2022, as we ring out 2021, is some sanity when it comes to cryptocurrencies. Because to me, I think we've reached the pinnacle of insanity. I mean, the stuff that I've heard, the stuff that I've seen this year takes the cake. I've never heard so much utter BS in my life about any particular asset that I've heard about Bitcoin. And again, despite the record amount of pumping and advertising and positive press, Bitcoin has not gone up. It spent the entire year almost going down. It had a big hyped up gain in the first month and a half of the year, and that is it. And it's been downhill ever since. 
and it's going to be a bumpy ride in 2022. So my advice to you, if you've been listening to this podcast and you still own Bitcoin, your New Year's resolution needs to be to sell. And I wouldn't wait for 2022 to get out. I would get out right now. I mean, maybe if you want to push off the tax consequences to 2022, if you still happen to have a gain and you want to wait till January 1st to realize it, okay, but get out. Don't overstay your welcome. You've already pressed your luck if you're still in. I mean, CNBC should have called the special crypto midnight in America, not just night, midnight, because the hour is late and the time to get rid of your Bitcoin is running out. Thank you.